Pastor, praise the Lord, everybody. Let's give the Lord a standing ovation of praise today. It's so wonderful to be in his house. Praise God. Amen. Hallelujah. Oh, I feel his presence here today. Amen. Amen. It's so, so good to be back in this wonderful church with my good friend, the Hughes. Great people, uh, great friends. Means so much to my family and myself. And uh, I'm just happy to be here today. I, you kind of, uh, you're kind of going to get a break today. I, I, uh, I've been battling broken ribs. Anybody ever had a broken rib? Wow. I'm going to tell you something right now. It's, uh, it's the worst thing I've ever dealt with in my life. Of course, if I had enough sense to stand upright and not fall down, I wouldn't have broken my ribs. So I uh, had a little problem tripping and falling. And when this falls, it's a serious situation. And uh, broke about three ribs. And I, it's, it's amazing what uh, all these doctors, I love doctors, uh, wonderful people. But sometimes they're just as useless as can possibly be. And you go there and you pay your deductible and the doctor says, well, I'm going to tell you something. There's not one thing we can do about this. You're just going to have to suffer through this. <clears throat> I said, oh, wow. Thank you. I appreciate that. He said, I can give you some painkillers. I said, come on, lay them on me, man, because I can't take this. He says, now, you can't take too many of them. They're, they're, they're addictive. I said, come on, put me in rehab after that. I, I just, let me get addicted to them. Then you put me in rehab for six months. I, just, I can't take this pain. Anybody ever had a broken rib? You know what I'm talking about? You can't lay down. You can't sit down. You can't stand up. You can't breathe. You can't laugh. It hurts when you swallow. And uh, so I've been battling that a little bit. So uh, I can't stand for too long of a period of time. That's a good thing for those that don't like long-winded preachers. Amen. Unless I get the pastor to get me a chair up here and sit down, <laughs> I won't do that. Thank you so much, Pastor, for your gracious invitation to this beautiful church. What a beautiful spirit here today. Great to have my daughter. I've got two grandsons. One is terrorizing the nursery, I'm sure, right now. And one of them is, in, is a perfect angel. And uh, so he's in Sunday school. So they're, I want them to come and be with me today to, uh, to meet the Hughes and just be in this great church. First Samuel, the 18th chapter, let me read to you a few verses. Pay very close attention to these scriptures today because there's a message in the scriptures. This is uh, Saul doing something on behalf of David after David has slain Goliath. And David said unto Saul, who am I? Well, let's, let's look first at verse 17 of chapter 18 of 1 Samuel. And Saul said to David, Behold, my elder daughter Merab, her will I give thee to wife. Only be thou valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul said, Let not mine hand be upon him, but let the hand of the Philistines be upon him. And David said unto Saul, Who am I, and what is my life or my father's family in Israel that I should be son-in-law to the king? But it came to pass at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, that she had been given to Adriel the Maholothite to wife. And Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. And Saul said, I will give her, him, her, that she may be a snare to him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Wherefore Saul said to David, 
Thou shalt this day be my son-in-law in the one of the twain. I will give Michael was given as a snare, not as a blessing. Now, I want, I want you to turn to the to Second Samuel, if you have your Bibles, and I want to read a verse from the 21st chapter, and I'll explain these scriptures in the, uh, as we get into the message. 21 and 8, 2 Samuel 21 and 8, this is a story of, of Rizpah, the concubine of Saul, who had two sons that were crucified by the Gibeonites. I'll just read this one verse. But the king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, whom she bore unto Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Michael, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Adriel, the, uh, the, the son of Brazilia, the Maholophite. Now, I want you to remember these two scriptures, that first of all, Michael was given as a snare, and then this is the conclusion of the story here when it talks about this horrible crucifixion of seven innocent young men on Mount Gibeah. I want to talk to you about a beautiful snare, a beautiful snare. Pastor, would you ask the Lord to... Just bless this word today. Amen. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. I have never seen a day when so many capable, intelligent people are being deceived. There was a funeral yesterday in southern Florida of a pastor, one of the most popular, charismatic pastors in the world, that at the age of 42 died unexpectedly. His funeral, there were so many people at his funeral yesterday, they had to move it from his church. He ran 8,000. They had to move it to a bigger building, and they were standing in line for three blocks just to get to view the body and to say goodbye to this bright, intelligent, charismatic, young preacher. You know what? He didn't die of a heart attack. He didn't die of cancer. He died of a cocaine overdose at 42. Everybody knows it. It's the, it's the giant elephant that's in the room when you talk about him. He was a wonderful, he was a nice guy. But he developed a problem. And he began to live an immoral lifestyle. And he was so deceived, he kept on going through the motions and very successfully at, at being a charismatic pastor. Every preacher that preached his funeral knew it. Most everybody there except many of the people that were members of his church. The man died of a cocaine overdose. I've never seen a day when so many people that are talented and gifted, well-intentioned in many circles, are being led astray. 
But when I read the Bible, I find out it's nothing new. It's always been there. I, I love to talk about David. David is a character in the Bible that we know so much about because we are given glimpses of other great men at different and specific times in their life in the Bible. But with David, we follow him all the way through from his boyhood all the way until he's an old man and dies. So we know more about him. And David was catapulted into national prominence by, you know, killing Goliath. A 15-year-old boy, the Bible says, that was of ruddy countenance, stepped out in the valley of Elah with a slingshot and five smooth stones from the brook Kidron. And he faced a giant that no man in Israel would face. Almost 10 feet tall, could heave a spear with accuracy at the length of three football fields. Incredible physical specimen. But David took him down. Not with a sword or a spear or a shield, but in the name of the Lord, he took him down. Cut his head off with his own sword. Took that head and slung it over his shoulder and marched up and down the battlefield. And the Bible says when the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. And all of Israel rejoiced. He was an overnight sensation. Everybody wanted to be around him. But there was a prize for what he did. There was a, there was a prize. Saul had offered the hand of his eldest daughter in marriage to anybody who would take on Goliath. Well, David was only 15. He wasn't ready to marry. But Saul said, you've got her. She's yours. And the eldest daughter was a girl by the name of Merab. Merab, historically, is not a good person, good girl, and would have made a wonderful wife for David. But David was young, and he was not ready to wed yet. So time went by. And when he came of age, and it came time for him to collect his prize, Merab was already married. So Saul had another daughter, and there was a difference here. And, you know, I kind of comically, when I read this story, and I, I kind of get the feeling that Merab was a, was a, a nice girl, but not nearly as good looking as Michael. And I think there's a reason why David waited. He said, I want her younger sister. She's a lot better looking. I mean, I, that's just the way it goes in life. I'm sorry. Some look good and some don't look so good. And we that don't look so good, we just have to go on anyway. That's just the way that it is. And, you know, kind of when David came to collect his prize and Saul said, she's already married, David went, thank God. I'm glad she's married. Amen. And Michael, this gorgeous, beautiful human being that all of Israel knew. This, she was so beautiful. And she wanted David, and David wanted her. But Saul had already got to the place to where he was sick and tired of hearing people talk about how wonderful David was. So Saul, there was a method to his madness here. He really didn't want Merab to marry David because he knew that Merab would be a wonderful wife and a great helpmate for him. And he knew how wonderful she was, and he also knew how vain and shallow that Michael was. She was aesthetically perfect, but she was inwardly weak, and she was self-absorbed and self-preserving, and she had a princess complex. And he knew 
that eventually somewhere down the road, this girl would cause David problems. So I read it to you. I didn't make this up. He said, I will give her unto him as a snare to him. In other words, I want this guy to fail. I don't want, I'm sick and tired. He, he, he actually became overwhelmed by almost a demon of jealousy. And he did not want David to succeed. So he put a snare, and it was a beautiful snare. Something that he knew would eventually rise up and fight David. And then he just sat back and waited for it to happen. Well, it took years for it to happen. The marriage was never a tremendous success. But I want you to flip over to 2 Samuel, the 6th chapter, and you'll find out when this thing came into fruition. Saul didn't live to see it, but his little plan worked. The Ark of the Covenant, which represented the glory and the power and the presence of God, had been gone from Israel for a long time and was now dwelling in the house of Obed-Edom. And David heard that how the household of a stranger was being blessed by the presence of the ark. So he led a procession to the house of Obed-Edom to bring the ark back into Jerusalem. Now, I want to stop here for just a minute. I want to tell you, this re-entry to Jerusalem was the most pivotal time in the history of the nation of Israel. Let me explain to you why. Because David had desired to build a house for the Lord, and the Lord would not let him do that, to build this elaborate temple. So David devised a plan to whereby for a short period of time, I'm going to bring the ark back into Jerusalem, and I'm not taking it to Shiloh, and putting it in the tabernacle, I'm going to build a temporary dwelling place for the ark. And it will be historically referred to as the tabernacle of David. That's not what David named it, but it's historically referred to as the tabernacle of David. The reason, and the tabernacle of David was not in Shiloh, it was on Mount Zion. Because deliverance had been promised to come to Mount Zion. Now, so when David led that procession back, he was fixing to place the ark in this beautiful temporary dwelling place where there were no inner court and outer court, no veils of separation, no, no, no labors of water, no altars of incense. There would be sacrifices made on that one day and then from that day forward, every sacrifice made in that tabernacle would be a sacrifice of praise. When you look at the tabernacle of David, and when you study, and you can find reference in Acts chapter 15, when at the first century council of the apostolic elders, they were debating the controversial subject of circumcision. Traditional Jews still believed at this time that Gentiles could not have access or inheritance to heaven because they were uncircumcised. The New Testament church was in turmoil and conflict, and at that first century council of the apostolic elders, James, who was the pastor of the first church of Jerusalem, stood up, and he made a statement. He said, God is going to raise up that which has fallen down. 
He said the tabernacle of David. What did he mean? You have to go and see when you look at the tabernacle of David, you find so much of our history. You listen to this beautiful singing, this open, this powerful worship today. All of this started in the tabernacle of David. David said, this is going to be a place. We're going to put the ark and we're going to centrally locate it. And you can come any time of the day or night. And you can have access to the glory and the power of God. There was just one requirement. When you come in this house, you've got to offer a sacrifice of praise. It was here you find the origin of choirs. The origin of orchestras and musical instruments being played in a service structure. The origin of shouting and saying amen aloud. The, the, there was no formalism. There was no ritualism. There were no requirements other than you have an openness. It's like there was a 35-year window into the, the, the dispensation that would follow. A 35-year period. So, you see, when David led this ark back, it was the most pivotal, critical time in the history of the nation of Israel and the kingdom of God. And so he doesn't send somebody to get it. He goes down there himself. And as they come into Jerusalem, guess who's leading the parade? He's dancing. He danced with all of his might and with all of his strength. Because let me tell you something about David. The reason that God hung with David, even though he made a lot of mistakes, because David loved the presence of the Lord. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you why some people don't come to the house of God, because they don't really like the presence of the Lord. They don't love it. Let me tell you why some people never miss, because they love and cherish the presence of Almighty God. When the Bible said he was a man after God's own heart, it simply meant he was a man who loved and cherished the presence of God. He couldn't wait to get that ark in place because he wanted to come into a place. And, and, and when you study the tabernacle of David, there was the ministry of, uh, of there, were, there, were, there were certain men that would just walk 24 hours a day in shifts around that ark shouting amen and praise the Lord and, and, and rejoicing. And it was, it was an atmosphere of praise and worship continually. This was born out of the heart of David. This pastor was a powerful time in the history of the nation of Israel and the future church. Because that's where it all started. And all of a sudden, sitting up in her little ivory tower, there's this tin. There's this Miss America. There's this beautiful woman that had been given to him as a snare. And the Bible said she didn't just disagree with him. She said she despised him in her heart. In other words, she hated what he was doing. She had no respect and no regard for the moving of God's presence. She didn't care about the tabernacle of David. She didn't care about worship. She cared about her image as a, as a queen. And she thought, this guy is really making a fool out of himself. David gets everything set, everything in place. He's had a great day. He bounces up into his own house. And there he's met with Michael. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I don't care how beautiful she was. She stepped over the line that day when she says, you made an idiot out of yourself. You made a fool out of yourself. Man, I'm I know the young people aren't in here today, but you better make sure when you marry somebody, you marry somebody who loves the presence of God just as much as you do. Praise God.
She said, you uncovered yourself. You revealed yourself. You, you should have been up here with me. It should have been servants. To, but you were out there. You made a complete fool out of yourself. Boy, I love David because good looks could only go so far with him. He said, let me tell you something. You're beautiful. You're marvelous. You're a princess. You're a queen. All these wonderful things. But let me tell you something about you. You didn't give me this job. And your daddy didn't give me this job. God called me to this job. And I'm going to tell you something. If you think I made an idiot out of myself, you wait till the next time I get in his presence. He said, I'll even be more contemptible. That's how much he loved the presence of the Lord. Hallelujah. I love that answer. And then the Bible says that Michael's womb was, was pronounced barren. She could never have a child. Never. Never. Which was an insult to her. And you say, why? Why would that happen? I'm going to tell you something. I, I'm, I'm 63 years old. I've, I've pastored for almost 30 years. I've traveled for a long time. I'm in a different church every week now. And I talk to a lot of preachers. I have a lot of wonderful friends. Your pastor is at the top of the list, one of my dearest. And I've seen people come, and I've seen them go, and I've counseled, and I've struggled, and I've given, and I've missed sleep at nights, worried about people. But there's one thing I've never seen in my life. I have never seen one person that took a stand against the movement of God's Spirit that took a stand against the presence of the Lord. I've never seen them blessed one time. I've never seen them win. They've always lost. They've always lost. God said, I'm not going to perpetuate any lineage. I'm not going to bless any womb that produces children that could be influenced by someone who despises my presence who despises the moving of my spirit. And let me tell you something. If there ever was a day when we're in that, we're in that right now. There is such a movement to do away with, with, with outward worship, old-time preaching. What I'm doing here today is considered old-time preaching. What we felt this morning in this service, old-time moving of God's power and presence. Now it's life principle ministries and it's, let, let me make sure that I'm, I'm up here and, and don't, don't dress in a suit and a tie. It's too offensive to people. Get you a pair of blue jeans and tear the knees out of them and, and get you a designer shirt and make sure the shirt tail's out. Get you a laptop computer and make sure you're teaching a lesson that has to do with something. I, I listened to a guy the other day and there were 10,000 people sitting out there and he was talking about some the stupidest things I've ever heard in my life. I've never heard anything like it in my life about, about talking about how to control your anger. And he began to use things like if, if you're in a parking lot and someone pulls in front of you, it's not the will of God for you to be angry with that person. It's the will of, he spent an hour talking about things that are just common sense. And there were 10,000 people out there that needed to hear something to help them through the week. I don't know why they keep coming back. And, and, and all these life principle things, don't believe in choirs anymore. Don't believe, don't, don't talk about the blood of Jesus is too offensive. Don't preach against sin because you polarize. It's not politically correct. Don't do it. And so, and be sure that you don't let anybody get out of line and, be, and, and have any of that old time worship like we used to have. 
And I'm going to tell you something right now. That's exactly why God closed up Michael's womb. Because he's not going to perpetuate or bless anyone that's going to take a stand against the power and the presence of God. And I'm going to tell you something right now. We don't have a right to dictate how the presence moves. We just need to learn to cherish the moving of that power. Come on, somebody praise the Lord right now. Somebody praise the Lord right now. Hallelujah. Oh, the Holy Ghost is moving in this church today. Thank God for that. Thank God for that. Hallelujah. Thank God for David's answer. Thank God that he said, ah, this is the way it's going to be. It was never the same between him and Michael. He never cared for her again. She was cursed of God because of her indifference to the moving of God's spirit. Let me tell you something. It's, it's, it's a fearful thing when you stand in the way of what God's trying to do in a church or in a ministry. I, I, you know, I, I've had a, I had a, I pastored a, a church for a long time. Wonderful people. Love them. Just went back and preached their 50th anniversary. And some of the old folks are gone now. But I was young. I was a young guy when I took that church. And, and boy, we had this love-hate relationship. I mean, we, we'd get at it about stuff. And, you know, it was a church that had a history of just kind of, just with a lot of problems. And so I went in there and we just had, we had a great family. I love those people and they love me, but we fussed and fought a little bit. I don't mind telling. It's kind of like a family, you know, and they, they were going to try to tell me what to do. And I listened to them, but then we had a problem there. You know, there's only room for one pastor and the board couldn't be the pastor. And the, the 65 year old youth pastor couldn't be the pastor. He'd been, a, can you believe that? He was almost 60 years old. And he was a youth pastor. I had to get rid of him. I mean, and he moved right into the senior citizens ministry. It was real easy for that. Just moved right into there. He was pretty happy about that. So we started having revival. God started moving. God started bringing some people in, in the deep south that didn't have white skin. And we started changing the music a little bit. Not new, not some of this new stuff I can't stand. But uh, just you could actually hear the words and worship to this music. And uh, all of a sudden, people began to rise up. I'm talking about indifferent. I'm talking about despising. Not just not me, but what God was doing. <clears throat> so I had a, a, an evangelist come by that, that I loved and respected. He called me off the side one day. He said, I'm going to tell you something. Seven men in this church are going to rise up against you, and every one of those men are going to die. I said, oh, my God, don't tell me that. I don't like stuff like that. I fussed at him. Don't tell me stuff like that. Keep that to yourself. Take that down the road in some church who believes in all that stuff. I said, I don't want to hear that. I don't, I don't want anybody in this church to die. I love all these people. He said, well, you can take it for what it's worth. So I did. Still love the guy to this day. I'm going to tell you something. Every word he said came true. Every word. I was at, I preached most of their funerals. And some of them, before they died, called me to their bedside and said, Pastor, I want to make everything right before I die. And boy, we had, we had glorious recovery and revival. But the chilling thing was about three of them never called me to their bedside. They died with that anger. They died with that frustration. They took it to eternity with them. And I'm going to tell you something. I've never seen anybody that takes a stand against something that God's trying to do in a church ever get blessed. They end up like Michael. They end up, it, it looks, they look good, 
you think it's going good. You might drive by their parking lot and see a lot of cars, and it has the, it's the Michael syndrome. Aesthetically it looks, but oh, when it comes to the blessings of God, God's not going to bless anybody who takes a stand against the moving of God's spirit. Amen. Let me tell you something. I would rather have, this is a good church and good, with a good number. I'd rather have a church with the people sitting out here today that cherish the moving of God's spirit than to have a church of 10,000 that tried to turn me into a little puppet to speak to them things that had nothing to do with the power of God's presence. Amen. Amen. Isn't it wonderful just to be able to lift your hands and have clear access to the power and the glory of God? Isn't it wonderful to have leadership who believe that at any time God's spirit can move into a service and heal cancer and deliver drug addiction and put families back together? That's what the presence and power of God does. We need his presence. Oh, hallelujah. You say, Brother Tomanella, what do we need today? I'll tell you, do I need to lay my hand on your head? Do I need to call your name out? Do I need to? No, I'm going to tell you what we, everything we need is in the presence of God. All we need to do is to love and to cherish and to hold on to the moving of God's presence and to support everything that brings that presence into the church. Put your hands together and let's praise him right now. Hallelujah. Thank you. Cherish the presence of God. Cherish the presence of God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I want my family in the presence of God. I'm glad my daughter is here today to be in the presence of the Lord. Hallelujah. I'm glad my grandsons are here today to be in a church that believes in the presence of Almighty God. Hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah. Cherish it. Hold on to it. Don't let go of it. So can you explain something then? If what I'm saying is true, what does this story mean that I read to you in Second Samuel 21? You know, Saul, he just, he's lost his ability to know when he was in or out of the will of God. That's, that's a sad thing when a guy loses that ability. That's, I think about that young man that I knew a little bit about that died. Man, he was so talented, so nice. But he lost his way to know when he was in or out of the will of God. Saul lost it. He would launch out and attack people. He, he, he led a battle against the Gibeonites one time and killed a lot of people, women, children. And he was not supposed to do it. He was dead and gone now. There was a famine in the land that had Israel in a death's grip. And David fell down before the Lord and said, God, what evil have I done? Why has this happened? And God said, you've done nothing. But Saul, his mistreatment of the Gibeonites has brought this famine on. Make restitution to the Gibeonites. And I'll open up the windows of heaven. He sent messengers to the Gibeonites thinking they'd want silver, gold, land. It's not what they wanted. They wanted the remaining sons of Saul. There were seven of them. Five of them were actually grandsons. He said, we want to take him and take out vengeance upon them. Two of them belong to an old concubine named Rizpah. But I read it to you. There were five sons of Michael, the daughter of Saul. 
Wow. That doesn't make any sense, does it? Chapter 6, her womb was closed. Chapter 21, she has five of her sons sacrificed. They were all crucified and burned at the top of that hill. It was a horrible death, horrible death. So you might say, wait a minute, what happened? I'll tell you exactly what happened. Michael said, I'm going to show God and I'm going to show David. What she did, her, her, her sister died prematurely. And she swept in and adopted Merab's five sons. And it was actually her adopted sons that died on Mount Gibeah. And you say, what are you talking Well, what does that mean? I'll tell you what it means. It means there's a reason why the Gibeonites didn't want silver and gold and land. Because God was not going to let Michael win. If she would have never, if she would have never adopted those boys, those boys would not have died. But it was God that put it in the heart of the Gibeonites. Because God's going to say, Michael, I don't care. If you think you can manufacture and manipulate me, I said your womb is barren. And you stuck your finger in my face and say, well, I'll just adopt boys. But God said, well, I'll take them away from you. And those five boys died there because God's not going to bless anybody that takes a stand against his presence. He's not going to bless anybody. You may think you're winning. And you may think that you figured it out. And you may think you don't need God. And that's what it's all about. It's about me, what I can do, my intellect, my talent, my ability. But I'm going to tell you something. In the end, God wins. And God's not going to bless. That's why, let me tell you something. I don't have to be in a church of 5,000 to be happy. Hallelujah. Just put me in a place where I can feel God's presence. That's all I need. Hallelujah. I, I, don't, I, don't have to, I don't have to be in a, I don't have to be around people that think they're ultimately successful and how could you go to a church like, oh, just put me in a place where I can bring my babies and gather around the altar and let the power and the presence of God. Because in His presence, there's fullness of joy. In His presence, there's fullness of joy. Hallelujah. In His presence, cancers are healed. In His presence, young people are filled and thrilled. Hallelujah. In His presence. And the Michaels of this world always lose. They look good. And they have the appearance, but they're nothing but beautiful. She was a beautiful snare placed there by her dad very effectively. But in the end, she lost. Because David had the power to know. It doesn't matter. I don't really care about being a king. I don't care about being popular. All I care about is the presence of God. Just let me get into that tabernacle where I can stand in the glory and the power of God. And I don't know who you are. I don't know what you need today. But while you just close your eyes, I'm going to tell you right now. If you move into his presence today, God will give you the desires of your heart. Hallelujah. If you will break away from that thing that is pulling you away from the church. Break away from that which is tearing you away thinking this is not where it's at. I'm going to tell you this is exactly where it's at. Hallelujah. Praise God. Oh, this is exactly where it is, where you need to be today. Hallelujah. You don't need to be anywhere else. You need to be in a place that is perpetuating the presence and the power of God. Led by a man of God who knows how to pray and knows how to worship. Knows how to preach the word with anointing and power. 
Whatever you need, I'm telling you, there's healing for your body right now. There's salvation for your soul. There's deliverance from presences that are binding you. Hallelujah. In the name of the Lord, if you'll come into his presence. I'm going to ask you to stand in a minute when I do. I'm going to ask you to come. And if you want to stand and come into his presence today, hallelujah. We're going to come into his presence today, hallelujah. You say, do, do you need to lay your hand on me? I'll lay my hand on you if, if I need to, but I don't think I really need to necessarily. I will. Because it's his presence that does the work. <laughs> it's his presence that will give you peace. That will lift the load that you're carrying. Hallelujah. I'm telling you, God has done some things for me this week. If you, I'm telling you, you can't believe what he's done for me this week. Hallelujah. I was sitting there while pastor was talking. I thought, my God, why would I want to be anywhere else but in church today? After what God has done for me and my family this week. Hallelujah. Oh, I want to cherish the presence of God. Love the presence of God. Move into the presence of God. Hallelujah. Stand to your feet right now. Who wants to move into his presence? I'm asking you just to step up to this altar right now. Hallelujah. If you want to move into his presence right now. Hallelujah. Don't be afraid to move into his presence because in his presence, that's where you're going to find what you're looking for right now. Hallelujah. Glory to God. You, you think it's complicated, but it's not. It's simple. You just get into his presence and then he unravels all the things that need to be unraveled. He puts everything back together. Hallelujah. Oh, this is where I long to be.